0: Good morning, and thank you, Brian, for leading us and for sharing your heart. What does it mean to be church in the city? Over the past decades, the world has undergone a remarkable degree of urbanization as more and more people are now living in cities across the globe, according to figures published by the United Nations. 52.1% of the world's population lived in urban areas in 2011, up from only 29.4% back in 1950. And this figure is expected to increase even further. They estimate that some 67% of the global population will be city dwellers by 2050. So being a church in the city, or a city church, is significant. It's a privilege and a responsibility. There are numerous opportunities alongside some very definite challenges. Cities are busy, diverse, constantly changing places, and therefore doing church, or rather being church in an urban space, isn't easy or comfortable, nor should it be. And the reality is many churches are now struggling to survive city life. Take our own denomination, for example, where the majority of Baptist churches in Belfast are in decline, getting smaller and smaller. And we're not alone within this immediate area. A number of churches of varying denominations have closed in recent years and others are staring at a very uncertain future. And so for those who remain, who long to make a difference, who seek to have an influence, there are many pressing questions to consider. For example, what does it mean to be a Christian presence and witness in an urban environment which seems increasingly uninterested in and unsympathetic to Christianity? What does it mean to be the people of God in a progressively secular, pluralistic, and godless context? Today we, as Brian has said, start a new series in 1 Corinthians where Paul writes to a church in a city, a city that had become or was becoming a melting pot of different cultures and people groups, a city populated by rich and poor, a commercial city. A city that was religious, where religion and politics were inextricably linked. A city characterized by increasing immorality. A city with a population, get this, 250,000 people. And without stating the obvious, a city not unlike Belfast. I'll say more about Corinth in a moment, but the critical issue for Paul was... Well, how should Christian believers, the people of God, how should they live and be church in that city? How do they take a stand? And to sum up his response, it's not by railing against the culture, it's often. How churches are seen to take a stand. Let's rail against the culture. It's not by pointing fingers, waving placards, and telling those who are not Christians what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing, it was by the church embodying a different way of life. It was by them living as they were meant to live. It was by them modeling an alternative community and lifestyle. It was by them being distinctively different. It was by them hearing the call to holiness, as Brian has been stressing, and taking that call seriously. And it's pretty clear as you read the letter that part of the reason for writing it was because they were in danger. This church in Corinth were in danger of ruining their reputation wrecking their witness. News had filtered through that there were problems, there were difficulties in the church that needed attention. Otherwise, they were going to implode as a Christian community in a growing and an important city. And so as we engage with this letter, and between now and the end of July, we're going to read the first seven chapters, but I hope we will be able to listen carefully and learn quite a few lessons that might help and protect Windsor Baptist Church, a church in the city. Now, before we read the text, let me say a little bit more about Corinth. Here it is on a map located at the western end of the Isthmus of Corinth, a four mile wide strip of land that joined the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnesus, a big bulge of land that sticks out into the Mediterranean Sea. And Corinth was an ancient Hellenistic city that had been completely destroyed and then rebuilt. After Rome conquered Greece in about 200 BC, Corinth was wrecked in 146 BC. And it lay in ruins for something like 100 years. Until Julius Caesar decided or decreed that it should be rebuilt, which it was. And then Corinth became a Roman colony populated by all kinds of people groups. And it had a couple of main ports. And therefore it became a center of trade. And in Paul's day, and we're now talking mid-first century, but in Paul's day, it was a distinctively commercial hub. But it also had a reputation for being a pretty seedy joint. Like many port cities, it was known for its vice and that was partly, although not entirely, down to the presence of the activities associated with two key temples in Corinth, Apollo's temple and Aphrodite's temple. I'm not going to go into the of details, but some of the stories you read of what was going on and what was publicly acceptable is pretty extreme by any standards. So, for example, at Aphrodite's temple, a thousand girls consecrated to this goddess, Who brought our eastern influence of sacred prostitution to this western port, they would have been constantly on parade, soliciting, sending out subliminal and overt sexual messages. And so it's no surprise that Corinth was renowned for its sexual promiscuity. So Paul first arrived in this city around AD 50. He stayed there for about 18 months. And during that time, according to Acts 18, he taught the gospel to Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue. And we read in verse 18 that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And so a new church was established. And then Paul left. And he spent the next three years in Ephesus. Different people had an input into the Corinthian church over those 36 months. But towards the end of his time in Ephesus, word got back that there were issues. There were issues which prompted Paul to write this letter. And I want to make the point to state the obvious. That this is one of the realities of local church. Difficulties are virtually inevitable. Whenever you're dealing with people from different backgrounds, with different stories, different interests, different concerns, different intellect, different expectations, different life experiences... There's going to be the odd tension and challenge to put it mildly, But here's the challenge, or here's the issue. How will this Christian community, how does any Christian community handle its issues? How does it handle its problems? How do they relate to one another as they wrestle with and address the various problems and difficulties that arise? Are they going to embody something different? Are they going to deal with it as a Christian community? Or at the end of the day, are they no different? And does Christian faith make next to no difference whenever the heat really is on? Now in terms of their specific problems, most of us are aware of some of them, maybe all of them. Christians were suing each other in the courts. Spiritual gifts were being abused. There was division. There was sexual scandal. Public worship was in chaos. People were getting drunk at the Lord's table, and gluttony was rife. Love was in short supply. There was an unhealthy interest in Greek philosophy. False teachers were having a field day, to name a few. And so Paul needs to put pen or quill to paper and speak into these and other issues. And at times he needs to say some pretty hard and strong and very direct things. And therefore he doesn't hold back. And so I want us to begin reading this fascinating and actually one of the, if not the most practical of all of Paul's letters. By the way, in case you're sitting and wondering, does David think or is he indicating at whatever level that some of these particular issues are a problem here at Windsor? No, that's not what I'm saying or suggesting. Although, do you know something they could be? Could be. But ultimately, I'm keen to reflect on how we as a church in this city live as the people of God here and now. And as we consider that, why Why shouldn't we turn to the story of another church in another city and see what we can glean? So... Huge introduction. Please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Have a seat. Do you know there is something about those verses... That, that struck me for the very first time this week. Jesus is mentioned and referred to in each and every one. Hadn't noticed this before. Now, I'm not wanting to take that somewhere it's not meant to go, but right from the start, Jesus is front and center. And for any church in any context, urban or rural... That is a critical issue, that who we are, what we are, and how we do what we do must be defined by, determined by, characterized by the reality and presence of Jesus in our lives and practice. Because whenever Jesus is at the heart of individuals and corporate expression and identity, everything changes everything is affected, everything is influenced, everything is renewed and being renewed, and everything is and should be done from a totally different perspective when Jesus is at the center. We've just finished spending five months thinking about the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we continue to pick up the challenge to be like a bunch of wise heads, and put his words into practice, then how we do church and how we are church in this city at this time will be incredibly refreshing and influential if we keep Jesus at the center and put his words into practice. Back in September, whenever we revisited our vision to be a church without walls, one of the key points we re-stressed was our desire to have porous borders, but a definite center. Which means amongst other things that right at the core of Windsor Baptist Church is, needs to be, must be Jesus. Because if we're going to embody something different, if we're gonna maintain a Christian presence and witness in an increasingly godless, secular, pluralistic, hostile environment, if we're gonna face up to the inevitability of hassles and tensions and problems that will arise here, then unless Jesus is at the center, Unless Jesus is the wind in our sails, the fire in our hearts, then we're in thin ice and in grave danger. I don't think, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Jesus features in virtually every phrase of the opening couple of paragraphs of this letter. And therefore, right from the outset of this series, I hope and pray that we will be a church in this city where Jesus is written all over everything we say and do. Incidentally, tonight, we start a new series, as Brian has said, called Nine a Day, all about the importance of the fruit of the Spirit growing and ripening in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. And we're going to look at the nine segments, or rather the nine characteristics of Jesus that are to be present and developing in every one of us who claim to live in God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And again, if this is our story, if this is happening, then not only will Jesus be kept front and central, but how we are church and how we face the challenges of being church in the city will be transformed. Think about it. How can there be divisions if there's peace? How can there be drunkenness when there's self control? How can there be sexual scandal when there's faithfulness? How can there be a lack of love if there's love? This all connects. And so please, if you can, come back tonight and let's keep joining the dots. Okay, let's unpack this a little further. You'll notice that that Paul isn't the only person writing this letter. don't know if you knew that. There's a co-sender called Sosthenes, mentioned in verse 1. We don't know a lot about him, apart from the fact that he was at one time the ruler in the synagogue in Corinth and that he got beaten up, according to Acts 18, verse 17, by a tribunal who were out to get Paul. Sosthenes must have subsequently joined the church and become Paul's friend and co-worker, which is much as we know. And so after introducing the letter writers, we discover the recipients, verse 2, to the church of God, please hear this, to the church of God that is in Corinth. It is not written to, it is not written about the wider community. This is very much addressed to the church, calling them to live as the people of God in a difficult environment in a particular context. Paul wants the church to face up to its issues, its challenges, its expression of Christian faith. And as a result of putting their own house in order, so to speak, then hopefully they will make an impact in their city. They will be counter-cultural. They will model something different and God-honoring. And so rather than engage in a culture war, or as I say, wave placards and point fingers and rant and rave at what's going on out there. What Paul calls the church to is embody a different way, church. Church. Remember what you are called to be. Who you are called to be. I believe that is still our call. Now, although Paul has some strong words and direct things to say, notice how he begins this letter. And Brian needs to hear this this morning. And maybe lots of you need to hear this as well. What does he start by doing? He affirms their identity as what? Failures? Wasters? Sinners? Screw-ups? No. Saints. He starts so positively, so powerfully, reminding them who they are, that they have been set apart. They have been sanctified. They have been made holy, not anything of themselves, but because of Jesus. Jesus. And I know we've thought about this a little before, but if you know who you are now, then you'll be encouraged and reminded to live accordingly as saints, as God's holy ones. And therefore, when you're challenged about particular choices you're making, about the particular attitudes or behaviour you're expressing, you'll be able to filter it through that lens. As saints, Is quarreling with each other ever appropriate? Is sexual scandal ever acceptable for saints? Is it abusing spiritual gifts and getting wasted and being greedy ever the way saints should live? Holiness is practical. It shapes all aspects of the way saints live. Throughout the Old Testament, God desires that Israel be different from the peoples around them and engage in practices that locate themselves within a narrative that marks that difference. And it's the same way in the New Testament in which the church is called to be different from the culture that surrounds it. Not real against it. Not shout and scream at it, but model something distinctively different. We're the ones called to be saints, called to be... They're not, the world is not called to be holy. We are. We are. Paul doesn't go for the jugular straight off. He affirms their identity and how they're called to be saints. Now listen, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and Windsor Baptist Church, that includes us. You, you, you are a saint. All because of Jesus. But in light of that, And because of who you now are, let's live accordingly. Let's embody a different way of doing life. And it's against that backdrop that Paul can then say what needs to be said. And yes, he does need to say some hard, strong things. But it's against that backdrop. But he's not going to say hard things just yet. There's more positive things to say and affirm. First comes a blessing rich with meaning. Verse 3, grace to you, peace from God, not condemnation and judgment, but grace and peace. May they know God's unconditional love and kindness, his unmerited favor and peace, which passes understanding, peace with God, harmony with each other. And so wherever we're at this morning, whatever is going on in our lives, whether it's good or not so good, grace to you. Peace from God. That's where we stand. That's where we need to locate and position ourselves. That we are under and surrounded by God's amazing grace and peace that defies human logic. And if you've come to church this morning and you're a bit wrecked, and you're a bit unsure and you're a bit fed up and you're a bit confused and you're a bit off track, then may you breathe in grace. Just breathe it in. Exhale praise. Breathe in grace and peace. And if you're struggling to see it, get it, experience it, then look again at this table and remember and realize how both grace and peace were expressed so vividly and completely at the cross. But after the blessing comes thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, yes, they're messing up. Yes, they're compromising something shocking. Yes, they're in danger of wrecking their witness and losing the plot. But Paul still says, verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You know, as I reflected on that, I came across this quote from Steve Ratliff that says everything I wanted to say and says it so much better and says it so much or says so much more here's what he writes. This pattern is instructive for us. Sometimes we get fixated on the problems in the church or on people that annoy us and it never occurs to us to be thankful for the grace of God that has been given us in Christ Jesus. Regardless Of any problems you see in the church, whether perceived or real, we should be overflowing with thanksgiving to God for his grace in Christ Jesus. It's an insult to God to think that everything has to be perfect before we give thanks. He goes on, this would be a great discipline for us as a church. Every single day we can thank God for the grace he's given us. I look around and see God's grace toward people who have recently come to faith. I see God's grace to people, or God giving grace to people who are suffering in various ways. I see God's grace in teaching people deep, substantive things that will bear fruit for eternity. God's grace is everywhere if we care to notice and give thanks. Breathe it in. Exhale praise. So Paul affirms their identity. You're saints. He prays for grace and peace in their lives. And then he thanks God for the reality and evidence of the grace that they possess. But he's not finished. Paul continues in a similar vein, giving thanks, recognizing how, and Brian read this, how they've been enriched And how they've been incredibly gifted. You're not lacking any spiritual gift. Which I know is ironic given what he goes on to say. But listen. You've been enriched. You've been gifted. And then this bit. God will keep you strong to the end. So that one day you'll be blameless. Now don't lose sight or forget Paul's reason for writing to this letter in the city. There were serious shortcomings, definite flaws, major mistakes, strong words needed to be said, very direct challenges were absolutely necessary. But let's keep this in perspective. There is hope. Why is there hope? Because there is God. And as verse 9 clarifies in big, bold print, God is faithful. We may not be, he is We may get it wrong, he doesn't. What God has started, he'll see through in their lives and in their church and in ours. And so before we look at the issues and problems, which we will do in subsequent weeks, and before we look around at the pressures and the challenges of being church in the city, here's what we must do. Look up. Focus on God who he is, what he has done in Jesus, what he is doing and what he will keep doing. And remember who you are because of Jesus. And so Windsor Baptist, you are saints in this city. And so let's take a stand by embodying something different as we live for and serve the God of this city.